In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Betches Moms, with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Get ready to lock yourself in the bathroom or wherever else you hide from your kids because you'll literally never be alone again. Hello and welcome to the Betches Moms podcast. I'm Aileen. And I'm Brittany. And today we are joined by Jenny Best, the founder of Solid Starts. I'm so excited to have you. We are going to be talking all about introducing real food to your baby, creating healthy habits, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you because Aileen and I are actually like both in this uh, like introductory phase of of introducing food to our babies. Um, I have, my second is going to be 10 months old. And Aileen, how old is Mila now? Se- seven and a third, I just calculated. <laughs> <laughs> you're still at that time where you're counting the actual weeks. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Yep, she's seven and a third. <laughs> I I also posted a story on my own personal um, Instagram, like confused about what I should just be doing. Like, I'm like, why does this feel like a first, full-time job. How, how am I supposed to manage it when yeah. I already have a full-time job? Yeah. And how do I know what to do? And like, what is everybody, how does everybody else know what to do? And so I got yeah. like so many people responded, like, we don't all know what to do. And then many people were like, follow Solid Starts. Go follow <laughs> Solid Starts. Mm-hmm. That was, it was just like a band of people saying follow Solid I was like, okay, I already do. Thank you. Um, and it worked out that to have you on the show and we are excited to get into it. Same, same. Um, so let's, before we go into everything, can you share what's your background? Yeah. How many kids do you have? Yeah. All of that good stuff. So I'm pretty much the mom in chief over at Solid Starts. I have three kids, including twins. And um, behind me is a whole sort of army of licensed feeding therapists and swallowing specialists, pediatricians and allergist MD, dietitians, the whole crew, uh, lactation consultants. I really wanted to build something that was totally multidisciplinary. I felt like when I was looking for information online about how to introduce solids and baby led weaning and all of that, there were a lot of accounts run by nutrition professionals, but I didn't see anything from doctors and I didn't see anything from like actual infant feeding swallowing specialists because, you know, not for nothing, as much as I love our nutrition colleagues in this space, like I'm worried about choking. You can't really help me with that, you know? So I wanted my doctor, I wanted an allergist to kind of reassure me about all the allergen introduction stuff. And really I wanted someone who specialized in the swallowing and like the airway and all of that so I could put my heart at ease 
um, that, you know, this wasn't going to increase the risk of choking in any way. So yeah, so I'm the mom in chief over at Solid Starts. Um, I'm the founder and I wanted to build a free food database for the world so that they could introduce food to their baby um, in a way that's culturally relevant for them and pick any food that felt, you know, special to their family and learn how to shape, prepare that, cut it, modify it if needed to make it safe for babies. Yeah, it's definitely been especially, I feel like a great resource for myself, even when like I'm at any time I'm going to serve food to my son, I'll check solid starts and I'm like, wait, how should I, should I be cutting it like lengthwise? Should I be cubing it? And then like yeah. I check the database. I'm like, is he too young to be eating this? So <laughs> I personally, as a mother, really appreciate you starting all of this. It's Thank very, you. very helpful. I just remember, you know, being in that position where you're like Googling things at two in the morning, like, how do I do this? And just chasing down rabbit holes after rabbit hole. I just wanted one trustworthy, like doctor driven place that I could rely on that didn't exist. So, so we built it. <laughs> and, and it's a baby, it is primarily a baby led weaning resource, right? It's not but though in your app, you do share like info about purees as well. Yeah. So we teach both responsive spoon feeding, which is a nice way of saying, don't put the spoon in baby's mouth. Stop before you get to baby's mouth. Let baby grab that utensil or spoon from you, which is so important on so many levels. And most people don't understand why. But um, so we teach responsive spoon feeding and baby led weaning. I like to just call it real food for babies because honestly, prior to the invention of baby food in the 1920s, prior to like commercial blenders and Vitamix machines and all these fancy things that made baby food into a perfectly thin velvety puree, there was just food. And it was food being modified by the parent in some way, smashed, uh, strained sometime, or even pre-chewed and handed over as kind of gross as that sounds. But it was just food in a variety of different textures. <laughs> and so baby led weaning is sort of, you know, kind of a trendy way of just saying finger food or the introduction of finger food. But, you know, in the 1880s, babies weren't starting solids until they were 11 months of age. So there was no need for baby food for a long period of time. It's kind of an invention of, of modern society and, and one, you know, frankly, of convenience that we kind of took too far. So yes, you know, you can use it. Most, most parents use it for either baby led weaning or, okay, I'm ready to transition to finger foods. I've done some spoon feeding. Now we're ready for self feeding. How do I do that? So we cover that transition as well. Why, why isn't, like you said, you, there's a whole reason why it's so important that you're not like spoon feeding your kids food yeah. into their mouths. Can you share yeah. why that is? So believe it or not, it actually increases the risk of choking. And you, oh, hot can, your baby can choke on water, on milk, on puree, on anything. When you are actively, when the parent is putting either a piece of food or a, a mash or whatever in the child's mouth, the baby's brain is not always ready for it. And that's hugely important. And I kind of imagine if someone was spoon feeding you and just like plopping food down in the middle of your tongue, it's a very sort of odd um, thing for the brain to have to deal with. When baby's brain sees a piece of food or a spoon, actively decides, I'm going to reach 
for that. I'm going to pick it up and bring it to my mouth. The brain is more ready to coordinate a safe swallow. And all, you know, all choking is, if I might speak candidly, is a failure of coordinated muscles in the throat and in the swallow. So, you know, you have two tubes, you've got an air tube and a food tube. So for you to choke, the food has to sort of mistakenly go down the wrong tube. That tube is actually covered when you're swallowing. So the body is designed to protect against it. So what happens in choking incidences is that there's like a failure of a brain stem like coordinated thing going on and that flap doesn't cover the the airway and mm-hmm. food or particles or marbles or whatever it is off the ground can get into it. So we really want baby to be in a position where they are calm. They are not distracted by screens or loud noises or pets or lots of other kids. And so that the brain can do what it needs to do. So yeah, it actually can increase the risk of choking. Now let's, you know, obviously babies have been spoon fed for, you know, at least the last hundred years and, you know, purees have a pretty low risk of choking that way. But the idea is that baby's brain is more able to make a safe swallow when baby decides to put the food in their mouth. So which you can say, you know, look, if you are putting finger food in your child's mouth because you're trying to control that process and you're afraid of them putting too much in, for example, we see parents make this mistake a lot. They'll make tiny little diced pieces of food thinking that smaller is safer when it's not. Mm -hmm. And then they'll put that food in baby's mouth themselves. That is actually the highest sort of risk activity that you can do. So you really want to make sure that when you're going to finger food or to small diced pieces of food, that baby is leading the feeding process at that point. Anything else will increase the risk of choking. But you you said that though, the safer method though, if you do choose to spoon feed, you have to wait, you have to pause. So is it it that they just open their mouth and like kind of baby bird ask for it. (laughs) They do. So actually from the beginning, most six month olds will reach for the spoon or the utensil and bring it into their mouth because they're so wired to explore with their mouths. They're really ready and kind of born to eat in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we want to do is stop before you get to baby's mouth, pause for a minute, see what happens, wait for baby to come grab it and then let go. Yes, it's going to get a little messy. They might like poke the wrong spot Take the other end of the spoon. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But all of that is really healthy in terms of the learning process. So aside from uh, decreasing the risk of choking when you let baby you know, baby's brain decide to put that in their mouth versus you deciding the timing of that. Um, it's also much better from a hunger and fullness regulation perspective. Babies know when they're hungry and they're full. They knew that from day one. They told you when they were hungry and they turned away when they were full. That is not something that has to be learned. So we want to respect baby's cues and not continue to feed them just because there's one more spoonful in the jar, for example, right? The the range of what is normal for a baby to eat is so wide. It's almost, you know, useless to measure in tablespoons or ounces because the range is just, you know, normal. Some, some little kids just don't need that much and some really, really need a lot. Um, so aside from decreasing the risk of choking, it's kind of better from a hunger and uh, fullness regulation. It also helps prevent picky eating because the child is in control from the start. A lot of picky eating stems from control issues at the table.
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's really interesting. Kind of going back to like the whole like baby led weaning aspect of it. At what age is a uh, proper time to start introducing solids? Generally around six months of age. However, as you all probably know as moms, like if your baby was born a month early or two weeks late or had developmental issues, age isn't going to be a perfect barometer for that. So we like to look at developmental readiness. So what we mean by that is, is baby able to hold their head up strong. You know, that's really important when we talk about preventing choking. Is baby's core strong enough to sit in a high chair safely? We don't want them flopping over to the side or falling forward and hitting their head. Um, is baby able to reach and grab for something and bring it to their mouth? That's a key readiness um, signal as well. So we have a list of those on our website if you know you have moms who kind of want to go through all the readiness uh, factors. But generally, those developmental signs show themselves around six, six and a half months of age. Is there a specific high chair that a baby should be sitting in that's safest? Yeah, we just published our high chair page on our website, which I'm really excited about because it's like the number one question that we get. <laughs> um, what high chair do you recommend? So we try really hard not to endorse particular products to stay independent as an educational authority. But um, what I will say is that the, there are a few features you should be really looking at, and then I'll share some chairs that have those features. So first and foremost, baby needs to be totally upright, no reclined seat whatsoever. Um, um, which is also to say you should never be feeding baby in a bouncer chair or a car seat or um, a stroller. Anything that has a reclined seat is going to increase the risk of choking. Um, so that's really important. And it's amazing how many high chairs are on the market that have reclined chairs. And I think it's just a carryover from um, the 1950s, frankly, when they were starting solids at four weeks of age, which, I mean, can you four even weeks. imagine? Four weeks was the average age. Ask your grandma. Four weeks was the average age of starting solids um, in the 1950s. And what's really interesting is that that is a, that age, that average age is a product of a century of not a century, but about 50 years of marketing to parents to start solids earlier and marketing that told mothers their breast milk wasn't enough, that um, that really questioned the safety of uh, mother's food, homemade food and home canned food at home. So there's a long sort of story of the history of baby food. And it's not, it's not necessarily a positive one. It's, um, it's kind of like Mad Men era marketing, truthfully. Uh, if you look at the advertisements, they would never fly today. Like they're 
they're appalling. They're, they're really angering to see. Um, they kind of marketed mom guilt, truthfully. Um, happy I, to, I to dive into all of that another time. Yeah. But it's really, it's really interesting. So I think the high chairs are kind of carried over from those times when a reclined seat was necessary because baby couldn't hold their head up. Like, why should they mm-hmm. be eating at that time? They shouldn't. But anyway, so you want a totally upright seat for a high chair. Ideally, you want to look for one that has an adjustable foot plate. It might sound kind of like an accessory that's not uh, necessary, but it actually really helps stabilize baby's core. If you ever um, uh, sort of ate at a bar that didn't have a, the bar stool didn't have a, like a a bar, something for your feet to rest on. You notice it's kind of uncomfortable. You don't really want to stay there very long. Um, We really want baby's legs to kind of be at a 90 degree angle. So like feet firmly planted on a foot plate and then, um, you know, with an upright back. So those are two critical features for us um, in our professional opinion for baby led weaning. And then the other would just be a removable tray. The, The earlier you bring baby to the table, to the dinner, table with you or while you're eating snack or lunch, um, the better it is for them. Babies have mirror neurons in their brains, which is why that they'll sometimes copy you. So you might see a lot of four-month-olds, for example, mouthing while you're eating. And you're like, oh, how cute. They're hungry. They're not. Their brain is just, I mean, they might be, but their brain is literally just copying what they see you doing. So even just bringing baby to the table before you start solids can be an excellent way in preparing the brain. The brain will start practicing these motions before there's even food in the mouth, which is just so um, incredible. So we want a removable tray so that you can bring baby up to the table. So they're not off in the corner by themselves eating um, over time that will lead to frustration on baby's part, separation, anxiety, and just a lack of interest in, in eating. Babies are so cute. It's too much. Um, so going back to, so you answered like, what age should you start? So for anybody who's listening or like feels like at least how I felt just a couple weeks ago, how do you start? Like, yeah. what do you do? Even if like you, you know, you tried some purees here and there, but you don't, I, at least I personally don't feel like I, there a guide. All I, all I heard from my pediatrician was, you know, introduce certain things three days, like just by itself to make sure there's no reaction. I'm like, what kind of even reaction am I looking for? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not giving her peanut butter yet. Should I? I don't even know. So how do you start? What do you do first? Is there a menu? Like, yeah, help. Yeah. So first of all, we have all of those guides and meal plans on our website for those who just like, tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. we, have, we have a few moms like that. Like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> Here, here's right. the guide for you. Here's the meal plan. We have a first 100 days meal plan that's really popular. But um, th- so the short answer is you can put one foot in front of the other. It doesn't have to be zero to 100. Baby's not going to be eating three meals a day with you at the start. They're just going to figure it out. I like to to kind of put a sand, a, a sort of goalpost in the sand in people's minds for 12 months of age. By 12 months of age, we want to see baby eating what you are mostly eating when you're mostly eating it. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like try to have those three meals nailed by 12 months of age. How you get there from six months to 12 months is largely up to you. 
Look, when you've got two naps, maybe three, and you're, you've maybe just nailed your breast or body bottle feeding schedule, and now you've got to add in solids, it can feel like you don't even have time in their wake window to fit this in. So what we like to do, instead of thinking, okay, I'm going to make this totally separate meal for baby, and it's going to be at this separate time, what we like to do is to just try to take oper- like try to take advantage of when you are eating breakfast um, or lunch, and just give baby baby a little of what you're having. I know it sounds kind of crazy, right? Wait, what? They can have just a little of what I'm having? Is it safe? All these things. Use our food database, look it up. You know, you'll see if it's age appropriate for the baby. But the reality is, is that aside from honey and let's say caffeine and sugar and some obvious no-goes, um, there's really, baby can pretty much have almost uh, anything that you eat. Now, you're not going to be introducing pizza in your first week because pizza has up to some like, you know, three allergens in a slice of pizza, right? So you want to be deliberate about introducing common allergens. So things like dairy and wheat and eggs and peanut, you know, you don't want to combine those, but you also don't need to wait multiple days in between. The advice that, um, you received is a bit dated, unfortunately. Um, there is no need to wait multiple days in between allergens because if your child does have an allergic reaction, let's say you're introducing peanut, you put a tiny smear of peanut butter in their yogurt or on your finger, however you want to do that, and they get a rash or hives or start itching, and then you have, okay, I've got an allergic reaction on my hands, that's going to happen almost immediately. And certainly within a couple of hours of ingestion, um, but usually literally within minutes, like you'll know it's going to happen. It's going to be like right away. So there's no need to wait multiple days in between unless there's some sort of like deeper gastrointestinal thing going on. But, um, you know, I think that we are the product of years and years and years of fear-based marketing, unfortunately, around how babies eat and learn to swallow. And, um, and unfortunately, that fear has become very uh, deeply rooted. But take allergies, for example. Only about 8% of kids are going to have allergies. 92% of you are going to be fine. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. a pretty stark number, right? Yeah, so, it is. But if you talk to most moms, they are terrified. They are absolutely terrified. And there's a reason for that. You know, the last uh, 100 years of marketing has really stoked yeah. um, those flames. Well, the thing that I'm terrified of is really the choking. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing that to me almost feels like I don't know if it's worth it. It almost seems way easier to give them purees. And if you are showing them a variety of foods, which can help make a non-picky eater. I have a, I have a kick in the pants for you, but you're going to like need to sit down for it. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> the protective mechanisms against choking in an infant are at their strongest from six to eight months of age. So if you wait too long to introduce finger food, let's say you wait until 12 months because you're nervous, you kind of want to like push that, kind of kick that can down the road and deal with it later, you're actually doing your child a disservice. 
And I don't mean to scare people, but it's just a, it's the physiology of swallowing. So in a six, a six to eight month old infant, they have an extremely sensitive gag reflex. And so, um, pretty much anything that touches the middle of the tongue will elicit this like very kind of forward retching upward motion. People often mistake that with choking. It's actually completely the opposite. Um, but it looks awful and all babies do it and it terrifies people because they don't know what's going on. They think they've prepared it incorrectly. They think their child is not ready when in fact the body is just figuring this all out. What's this thing on my tongue? Well, I'm not sure about this yet. Um, after eight months of age, that gag reflex slowly starts to move back, 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 back further down toward like the throat. So for you and I to gag on something, that food has to get pretty far back in the throat to elicit that, to trigger that reflex. For a baby, it's here. So anything that kind of touches the tongue is going to, you know, start working that reflex. It's actually a really good time to learn and make mistakes. Um, we want to actually introduce finger food when those protective reflexes are in high gear. I know it's counterintuitive to everything you've learned and read and heard from your parents probably over the years, but it's it's the reality. Look, our feeding therapists are the um, nation's leading experts in the neurobiology of swallowing. They teach at Stanford University and other places like that, and they, they teach the teachers or the trainers of the trainers, and uh, we're going to offer a neurobiology of swallowing course for pediatricians uh, later this fall to help kind of undo and almost like they need to unlearn what their assumptions were before. This was not something that was taught in the 1900s. It's sort of a relatively new field. And it wasn't, it certainly wasn't a field when baby food was developed. I was laughing yesterday because I was going through old vintage baby food ads and I came across one that said, um, it was like a stage three junior food, which was like chunky beef and noodles. And, you know, here it is on a spoon. We're helping Bobby learn how to chew today. And I started laughing because anytime you put a, a chunky mash on a spoon, babies suck to swallow it. They don't actually chew at all. <laughs> so great. Now we're sucking to swallow chunky beef noodles, <laughs> yeah. which is like one of the most dangerous things you could do. <laughs> so, you know, look, I, you know, we are, are of an era where we have been taught that baby food should go come in stages. Stage one, stage two, stage three. Stage one is like perfectly thin watery carrots. Stage two is like a little bit thicker. And stage three is this, you know, whatever beef noodles and whatever junior. The reality that couldn't be further from the, the truth because any any kind of mash or puree or even if it's, you know, the, the stage three food delivered on a spoon is going to be sucked to swallow. The foods that trigger the chew reflex are chewable foods, but they have to be put in by, um, by baby to kind of get that in motion. So we, we have a lot of unlearning to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we're trying to be at the forefront of that so that parents get more comfortable. Once you understand how swallowing really works, we have some fun animations we're publishing to show it. And once you understand how the protective mechanisms work to protect the child from choking, you know, for example, as I said, the airway is actually covered 
when baby is swallowing, also when baby is gagging, the body closes off the airway so that nothing can get in there. The risk of choking is actually extremely low. You're much more likely to run into an issue in the car or crossing the street or you know th- those kinds of things. So once you see it, unlearn it, really understand it, you will realize, oh, oh my God, I get this. We've had this wrong. We've had this backwards for a hundred years. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So kind of like how we're talking about unlearning and this new notion of baby-led weaning, and it's definitely generally a a pretty new approach to feeding. Um, What do you say to people that that say it's like very extreme and like people try to push baby-led weaning on you and like it's the only way to go and people feel very put off by that? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, you do not need to choose a method when feeding your baby. Like, And it's one of the reasons we don't use that sort of moniker anymore, um, because there are some really scary dogmatic Facebook groups out there. <laughs> Avoid them. <laughs> uh, there's no, no good can come of it. Anytime you are dealing with parenting advice that is extremely pure, you know, or very sort of rigid, there's, to me, that's always, you know, a red flag. Um, But look, you know, all babies need finger food. It's just a matter of when you are introducing that. So, you know, if the goal is to get to the family meal, which that should be the goal, right? That baby should be eating what you're eating eventually. The longer the sort of more space you put between point A and point B, the harder you're making your life, truthfully. Um, So we like to kind of shorten that bridge, that transition bridge, but you can completely put one foot in front of the other. So I actually, I have a a post that went viral early in, early in our days where um, I said, this is how you can do baby led weaning with spoons. And it was showing an overhead of preloading the spoon and setting it down for baby to grab. And then I would preload another one and then another one and baby kept grabbing it and grabbing it. And it was like mind blowing to people, but it's just like, I'm just letting baby put the spoon in their own mouth. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I love, I love encouraging parents who, you know, don't want to do the early introduction to finger food or who are not ready for baby led weaning, who can't quite grasp that concept yet, um, to do responsive spoon feeding, which is letting baby grab the spoon from you. Um, but also there are a number of really, um, beautiful foods that almost act like teethers that they can start with like a mango pit. It's completely unbreakable. Baby cannot bite through it. Can't take a bite off of it. You just cut most of the fruit off and literally hand the seed of the mango over to baby 
Also, by the way, the most amazing food for teething babies, because if you put that in the fridge and it's like, it's like a mango popsicle for their gums, right? So delicious and yummy and it'll buy you 15 minutes of total peace. Um, but there are foods like that, corn on the cob with all the kernels cut off, um, you know, things that sort of resistive foods that are unbreakable can be fantastic for kind of dipping your toe in the water if you're not quite ready. And those foods also trigger the chew reflex. So baby yeah. will start practicing chewing before the food is even in their mouth, which we really love. You talked about the choke reflex sort of being very protective of young children, but then also that there are risk, there are risky ways to introduce foods. So yeah. that can actually over, I guess, overpower that that protect those protective measures. So What are the safety precautions when introducing solids? Like, can you give strategies to people listening about how they can start? I mean, I get, I totally get like eat what you're eating, but I wouldn't even know what to give them. Yeah, for sure. So um, first and foremost, you want to be in a safe eating environment. What does that look like? Baby is in a proper high chair. It's upright. Um, You're turning the television off so their brain isn't distracted by that. Um, You know, any loud noises that might be happening in the room next door, we're kind of minimizing distraction. You really, when it comes to safety, we're we're really talking about minimizing distraction. Um, Because as I said, Choking is almost like a miscoordination of the swallow, right? The brain is like misfiring in some way and things didn't go right. It's rarely actually about the size of the food, believe it or not. Um, Certainly there are particular foods like pistachios and peanuts that are very close in size to the baby's airway and can kind of lodge themselves in, uh, forgive the word, but quite perfectly in in a really dangerous way. But um, we're really talking about environmental calmness, creating a calm eating environment that's free of distractions in a completely upright position. That is above all the most important thing, above cutting something properly, above the size, above the consistency um, is really the, the eating environment. Now, from there, let's talk about food size. For the youngest babies... And this is going to be one of those, I'm not sure I believe you moments. Bigger is safer because a baby's brain has not yet formed a mental map of their mouth. So if you took a bite of a hard boiled egg and there was still like a little piece of shell on it, your brain would go, oh, there's shell there. I'm going to find that and spit it out almost without you thinking about Mm -hmm. it. Baby can't do that yet. They don't, their brain has not yet made it like a mental map of the mouth to know where things are. So when your baby's constantly poking their mouth with the wrong end of the spoon, I want you to let them keep doing that because their brain is trying to figure out, okay, that pressure point, okay, that's there. That pressure point over, okay, oh, that's over there. And all those, that poking and prodding helps the brain figure out where things are in the mouth. It's really important. Bigger is safer because the brain knows where it is in the mouth and because baby can go in, reach for it in the mouth, and pull it out. Mm -hmm. When you're cutting food into small diced pieces or tiny little shreds, the brain is not going to feel as much input from, there's not as weight, much, you know, sensory input into the mouth. Um, And baby doesn't have the fine motor skills with their fingers 
to go in and pull that out. But a huge piece of broccoli, and I'm talking big, like palmful size, they can pull that out themselves. So again, this like really counter, you know, it counters everything we've been taught and learned because you open up a baby food cookbook and what do you see? Perfect little cube pieces of food because that photographs well and because that's what we've been told, small is better. It's not. When baby gets to be around nine, 10 months of age, they'll develop what's called a pincer grasp, which is the ability to uh, put their uh, pointer finger and their thumb together. And it enables them to pick up smaller pieces of food. At that age, around nine, 10 months of age, you can move down in size to smaller pieces of food, which will help slow baby down a little bit, probably put you a little bit at ease, smaller bites in the mouth. Um, and at that time, baby has had, you know, maybe a month or so of practice of, of finger food and is more coordinated with the mouth and things will be, um, the map, the map of the mouth will be formed in a way where the brain knows that where that small piece of food is. But generally, bigger is safer with babies because um, the youngest babies can spit out too big a piece of food more easily, can pull out with their hands too big a piece of food, and the gag reflex will be more um, kind of triggered by a too big piece of food than something small that kind of rolls to the back of the mouth. So like my biggest fear with parents starting solids is actually chickpeas and blueberries um, because they're kind of like superfood status and everyone's eating them. And, you know, things that kind of are small and can roll around on the tongue can confuse the brain more easily and bypass the gag reflex and um, go down. But just because they've swallowed a whole blueberry does not mean they're going to choke. And it's really important that people kind of simmer on this for a moment. You can swallow a too big piece of food. Your baby can swallow a whole blueberry. What we don't want to happen is something that's round and similar in diameter to the airway to accidentally go down the wrong pipe and be that perfect size that gets stuck. But your esophagus, your food tube is elastic. You may have experienced this yourself. It happens in restaurants a lot when you're talking and eating. Um, but you may have had like a piece of steak or something that requires a little more chewing. You swallow it and you're like, ooh, that's kind of going down slowly. What? Wait, am I choking? Wait, no, I'm breathing. Wait, what's going on here? That's just like you took a too big of a bite. You swallowed it. It's now going down your elastic esophagus and your esophagus is kind of pushing it, pushing it down. So, um, yeah, bigger, bigger, believe it or not, bigger is better for the six month old babies. And then closer to nine, 10 months of age, you can move down in size um, as well, in addition to, to big pieces. So, even of food. if they themselves like break it to be smaller, or take a bite or a gum bite of it to be like even a piece of broccoli, like soft broccoli that's been like, what if they joke on that? Yeah. So here's the thing. When baby's brain decides to take a bite, the chewing reflex is coordinated and the swallow is ready. So baby's brain is ready and doing the things it needs to do to make for either a safe swallow or if needed, a spit mm. or if really needed, a gag right? We like to say if baby can bite it off or pick it up, then you should be good to go. But okay. if you are, if baby is not able to pick up that small diced potato that you so perfectly cut into little cubes and you put that in baby's mouth, that's, that's not safe. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It's all so, about getting the brain ready. Okay. 
Got it. Which makes sense. But should there ever be an instance that you put your finger in your child's mouth? I have to say no, but I've done it. So I'll give you the I'll give you the official answer and then the mom answer. <laughs> the official answer is that if you look at emergency room data across the United States, you will see that anytime a parent puts their finger in a child's mouth because they think they can get the food out, they inadvertently push the food further back. So like when you talk to like paramedics and people like that, they will say never ever 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 put your finger in baby's mouth ever. You can lean them forward. You can, you know, pat them on the back. You can um, do whatever you need to do to help them spit that out. We love coaching parents to spit their tongue, to show their tongue to baby, like to so that baby can learn that they can stick their own tongue out to let it fall out until they get that spit kind of coordination down. When you put your fingers in child's mouth, you are increasing the risk of choking. That is statistically shown. There are times like when my, my girl 80, she was maybe 15 months at the time, sucked on some piece of chicken for so long that it formed like (laughs) a, a, a like shell on the roof of her mouth and she could not get it out. And I had to kind of go in there and like scrape it forward. Okay. But I also know what I'm doing. So there's, there is something called finger sweeping and you kind of hook your finger and it's always a forward, scraping forward motion to be very, very careful about it. It's a pretty invasive experience for the baby. And typically when the parents go in and pull stuff out of baby's mouth, baby gets really frustrated and negative associations start developing with eating. It happens a lot with really nervous parents, right? They're going to be pulling out things that probably don't need to be pulled out. Um, And I have tons of videos of these (laughs) because parents send them to me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the more, the more you do that, the more you are increasing the risk of confusing baby's brain about what's going on here. So the best thing you can do, I love to um, tell parents that when there's too much food in the mouth and baby's like not sure what to do with it, to get to go to their high chair and kneel below them so that they're looking down at you because you don't want them, you don't want to be standing above them when they're looking up at you because that's like toward gravity starts pulling food toward the the throat, right? So you want to kind of like lean them forward with your hand a little bit and kneel down. So they're looking down at you and then you can go blah and show your tongue and see if they'll mimic you. Um, Otherwise, sometimes even just a small drink uh, from an open cup will loosen whatever is happening and they can either continue working with it or spit it out. But coaching baby to spit is incredibly important. Babies and toddlers don't always understand that they can spit. And that's really important because if your child picks up a marble or a stale mini marshmallow would be an incredibly high risk, or a piece of rubber from your shoe. This just happened in our community two weeks ago. Baby was teething on mom's shoe and managed to get some rubber off of it. You need that baby to understand, oh, this is not food. I need to spit this out. So spitting is a life skill that we like to see parents, you know, proactively teach by sticking out their own tongue. If you put your hand under baby's chin and then kind of show them as well yourself, like, oop, too big. I'm going to spit this out and put your hand beneath your own chin and then baby's chin. They'll start to understand, oh, I'm actually allowed to spit this out. I can get this out of my mouth. I don't have to swallow it. 
Um, but otherwise, baby will actually try to swallow it. So spitting is really important. But again, like these really big resistive foods like a mango pit or corn on the cob, things that babies can't bite through are fantastic for learning um, and developing a lot of these oral motor skills that babies need to like become safe eaters. Are there specific foods that are more dangerous than others? Like, for example, I gave my 10-month-old son, like, a big strawberry to chew on, but he has two yeah. little teeth. Yeah. So, like, he tends to, like, get little pieces. But then yesterday, he got this really big piece, and I put my finger in my, his mouth, and I took it out because yeah. I was nervous, even though he was yeah. probably fine. But is – because I felt like a strawberry is too – thick for him to chew? Like, what do you do? Are there specific foods that you just need to be more concerned about? Yes, there are. But first, I'm going to just calm your mama heart for a moment about that strawberry because your baby's airway, okay, so for baby to choke, something has to get in their airway, not just in their food tube and swallowing of the esophagus, but the actual airway that goes to the lungs. So it has to go down the wrong way, right? Step one, that airway is the size of a drinking straw tiny, tiny, tiny. So for something to actually get, it has to get in the airway and get stuck there. That's why I said a pistachio and a peanut are so high risk because they have those like small tapered shapes where they could maybe fit into a drinking straw and then like you wouldn't be able to blow it out. Does that make sense? The air in your lungs would not be able to cough it out. That's why peanuts and uh, pistachios are among the highest risk foods you can possibly serve anybody. That big strawberry isn't even going to make it close to the airway. It's too big. So now there are some foods that can form a plug over the airway, like peanut butter, a huge glob of peanut butter, especially if it was on bread and it wasn't dissolving as quickly by the saliva in the mouth, that could kind of sit on top of the airway. But baby would have enough air in their lungs likely to cough that up and forward. So um, the real risky foods are actually the small round or like cylinder shaped foods that have like a tapered point, like a a peanut, a pistachio, almond, maybe for a slightly older child, um, things that are not going to break down with saliva very quickly, um, and things that um, can kind of roll around in the mouth and not uh, and kind of confuse the brain. So those are the higher risk foods. Um, you know, look, a small grape is more dangerous than a very, very large grape, for example. A small blueberry is more dangerous than a very, very large blueberry. So that's what we want to really get people to start thinking about is that bigger is actually safer because it would trigger the gag reflex if it got too far back. It's also going to trigger the chew reflex to break that food down. Um, and it, it's just too big to even get into the airway. But the most common choking hazards under three years of age are typically things like raw apple, um, bread, actually, believe it or not, um, cookies, crackers, um, hot dogs, popcorn. Um, so shape does matter. Um, peanuts and pistachios, nuts, things like that. So, um, avoid dried fruit, avoid nuts right now, but you can finely grind them if you want to do allergen exposure or whatever and sprinkle that on yogurt or just use the nut butter and stir that in. Um, so it's kind of a way to modify almost every food to make it safe for, for babies. But really you want to avoid foods that are really, so let's take a baby carrot, for example, very, very dangerous shape. 
because it's tapered, it's small, some of them are really skinny. It's hard. It's not going to break down really easily. And it's cylindrical in shape. So, you know, it's those three qualities that we want to modify. So if it's firm, round, and I would say slippery, if it has any of those three qualities, we want to modify it. But the beauty is you just kind of do the reverse. If it's firm, you cook it, you make it soft. If it's slippery, add some grip to it or take off the skin. The skin is the slippery part. And if it's uh, round, cut it in half so it's no longer round or cut it lengthwise. So that's more like a stick shape. What is like the goal of all of this? Like I know we talked about being a picky or versus not wanting your kid to be a picky eater, but are they necessarily not going to be a picky eater because of this? Can't can they ex- like experience all different types of foods when they're a little bit older and still and experience foods then, you know, like such a good question. Eileen, I hear you asking all these questions to see if you can, um, punch, punch the finger food, uh, yep. operation down later into childhood. Yep. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to give you another kick in the pants. Um, here's the thing after 12 months of age, most toddlers are not open to new foods. Okay. So if you think you're going to introduce a wide variety of new foods in toddlerhood, it gets a bit harder. Around 12 to 18 months of age, toddlers develop a really strong neophobia, a fear of new things. This happens with people, it happens with objects, and it happens with food. They also start to kind of get more selective and start to realize, hmm, I think I like white bread better than brown bread. And I think I like strawberries better than green peppers. And so they, you have this kind of perfect storm of the fear of new things and selectivity coming into play, which is why you hear things like, my baby used to eat everything and now doesn't eat anything. There's no way you can prevent picky eating because every toddler is picky. To a certain extent, that's true. What they're experiencing is the select, increasing select selectiveness, but also the fear of new things. That said, the foundation that you lay is not for nothing. It's not for nothing. As a mom of a severe picky eater and having done this three ways now, I can tell you that the more foods textures, shapes, colors, temperatures even, the more foods you introduce before 12 months of age, the better shot you have. Will some kids end up picky no matter what? Yes. It's a small percentage though. The large, like the majority of kids, you can actually kind of steer into the right direction with the right um, exposure and uh, sort of environmental um, what's the right word? Like creating a happy environment around food that's pressure free and, you know, things like that. So look, the more, the more finger foods you do, (laughs) the more colors, the more veggies, the more green exposure, the more foods are touching like stews and things that are mixed up, you know, as opposed to perfectly sectioned baby plates where foods are not allowed to touch each Mm other. The more you can actually get closer to the table meal, the, Uh, more likely it is that you'll fend off like, you know, severe picky eating at least. And then you'll just run into the, you know, run of the mill toddler selective. I want white bread, not brown bread and things like that. But how you respond in these moments as a parent of a toddler is actually what, you know, kind of chooses the path. So let's say you've laid this really great foundation for baby. You've introduced a lot of foods by age one. You feel like you've done you know, a fair amount of work on that part. They've tasted a lot of different vegetables. They're eating well. 
when it comes to that first food refusal and they're throwing food at you or when they have language declaring it the worst dinner ever, I want you to like put your Stepford mom face on, be totally cool with it and say, okay, I hear that you're not hungry for dinner. That's all right. We'll have breakfast in the morning. Full stop. What happens with toddler parents is that they overreact and they get terrified. Oh my gosh, baby, uh, the child um, skipped dinner. Now they're going to wake up in the middle of the night. Oh God, I I need my sleep tonight. I can't do this. So let's have a snack after. And then the toddler goes, ooh, I get this game. I get snack (laughs) if I don't eat dinner. And then it kind of like spirals down into like endless snacks and grazing and extra bottles and extra breastfeeds and all these things because the parent want sleep or the parent just needs like, you know, calm, (laughs) calm in their house. I get all of that. Um, But you can see quickly how it spirals down because toddlers are kind of like little manipulators and they like to push boundaries and they pick up on these things really quickly. Like if I cry and I scream and I, you know, make a, a thing, I get a new meal. I get macaroni and cheese instead of, you know, spinach casseroles. So we have to create some loving boundaries at the table with toddlers so that you don't end up kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy around picky mm-hmm. eating. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely something I myself need to work on with my toddler because I'm all about, about just like, all right, whatever. And then an hour later, he's like, well, I want a snack. I'm like, oh, yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Look, it's hard. I think it's okay to have short game days. You know, there are days when you're just like, just eat the, the damn goldfish and like, let's be on yeah. our way. I have yeah. those days too, you know, like for sure. Um, but you kind of want the scales tipping in your favor of like, if, if it's important to you to be able to go out to a restaurant with your child and to not have to bring your own meal, peanut butter and jelly sandwich to that restaurant or to travel with them and be able to go somewhere and know that your child will be able to kind of roll with it and eat something. You know, those are things, those are steps we need to kind of take now. So try to have the long game in view just more often than the short, and then give yourself permission to live a short game day because we all have them, no sleep or teething or poop blowouts, whatever. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) Life's crazy. Um, I was going to ask one question because I feel like it kind of, I always see it hand in hand with the whole baby lead weaning, um, I don't know, baby lead weaning, what do we call it? Who knows? (laughs) Movement, whatever. (laughs) Um, But drinking out of an open cup rather than with a straw. Yeah. Actually, you should be doing both right away. Um, And I actually love doing straws super early because don't forget that baby has that really strong um, sucking pattern from drinking from breast or bottles. So teaching straws right away is actually really um, strategic because they'll get it more quickly than if you wait until like closer to like 11 or 12 months of age, mm-hmm. for example. Um, I learned this the hard way with my firstborn. He literally showed up to preschool age three, not being able to suck out of a straw because I literally missed the window. It was like, I think I introduced it at like maybe I'm embarrassed to say now 18 months of age and he was like not having it. He was so frustrated. He didn't understand it. He wasn't drinking from a bottle anymore. It's like sucking was not even something he 
could remember almost. And he got so frustrated, he would cry and throw the cup in and just like give up. And literally, he was the only kid in preschool who didn't know how to suck from a straw. Um, And if you know, if you've ever done daycare or preschool, you have to send your kids with a water bottle. And like, that's what they have to drink out of. And so his first week at preschool was really hard because he couldn't get the water that he wanted. And his teachers were frustrated because he didn't know how to use it. And of course, I'm like, I'm the worst mom ever, you know, all that stuff. Babies, babies at six months of age, they're sucking from bottle or breast. Like use that, use that moment to get them to learn to do a straw. But we love doing um, both open cup and straws right away. I like to kind of do one of each um, uh, at each meal. So like maybe breakfast is a straw and lunch is open cup or, you know, something like that. You can also, for those babies who like to make a lot of mess, you can start with the open cup at the beginning of the meal with just a very little bit of water um, or expressed milk or whatever you want in there. Um, And then toward the end of meal, move to a straw cup that's less messy. And when they're like going to start pouring and playing and just making a mess because they're, they're not hungry anymore. So um, right. But do it now. Don't wait. What about the sippy cup? What? Why are we talking about that one? <laughs> yeah. So um, there's there's nothing really wrong with a sippy cup. It just it um it doesn't. It's not a cup that you use as an adult. So you, it's actually it's it's a in between step that is unnecessary and doesn't actually teach the skills of drinking from an open cup or a straw. So it's almost like you're creating a third to-do list on your item. Most sippy cups that, you know, babies will take to them right away because you just suck on it and whatever, but it's not great for their teeth or for their sort of like oral um, motor development. Most feeding therapists really um, encourage you to stay away from sippy cups. But the reality is, is that like, it's not going to be the end of the world, but you're not going to get any closer to a straw ah. through a sippy cup. So it's kind of like, well, I might as well just go to a straw right away. Mm-hmm. Your baby can learn to drink from a straw in as little as a day. So if you go to our cup drinking page on a website, um, we have some videos of how to teach like surefire ways that like it'll it'll click in less than a day. I am heading to that yeah, page it's, currently. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely took... And I started the I started straw with both my three and a half year old and my ten month old at the same time around six months and it took my my baby now like one day and it took my yeah. older son like a couple of days to get it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Wow. Learned a lot. <laughs> so much. <laughs> so much. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's good. good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you share for everybody listening like more resources where they can learn more? I know your yeah. Instagram is huge. Yeah. So Instagram certainly where we're the most active and I show up there about three times a day. So that is a like a, a gold mine of in, a free information. <laughs> so definitely follow us there, Solid Starts. Um, but our free food database is incredible. We have more than 250 foods in there. You can look up pretty much any food and see how to cut and prepare it for your baby's specific age. We have diagrams that show how to do it, videos. Um, and I think it's in like the top 4% of apps worldwide right wow. now. Like dare I say, oh, wow. Congrats. Yeah, most downloaded apps ever. So 
So it, the Amazing. app is free. The whole thing is free. So take advantage of that. You can just look up Solid Starts in the app or Apple or Google Play um, or go on our website and use it that way. So a lot of people just Google Solid Starts Apple, Solid Starts Banana, <laughs> Solid Starts Avocado <laughs> and find what they need until they are like, oh, wait, I could just download the app. <laughs> I also like how you could save foods that the babies tried. Yeah, yeah. So the the app is free. And if you want to customize it to your baby, make lists, track, you know, reactions for your doctor, um, there's a small fee, you know, a subscription fee for that. But we're trying to keep it really accessible so that uh, pediatricians recommend it to uh, their patient families, which we're starting to see, which is really awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. It was nice meeting you both. It was so nice meeting you. It was so nice meeting you. Sorry if I dumped too much on your heads. <laughs> no, it was awesome. No. Really, it was great. Great info. It's always a conversation that we're having, and to like finally like have it with you is amazing. It's awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Please go follow Solid Starts if you don't already, but I have a feeling you already do. So that is it for this episode of the Betches Moms podcast. Don't forget, leave us a review. We have a full team running the show. It would be so amazing if you can just leave us a review, a nice little rating. And subscribe on Apple and Spotify. Follow Betcha's Moms on Instagram. You can follow me at Aileen. Don't follow Brittany. She doesn't want anyone to follow her. And remember, there are no rules on this podcast. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, right, Regina? Please stop talking. The Betcha's Moms podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Social media by Brittany Levine. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow us at Betches Moms on Instagram and send us your emails to moms at betches.com. Betches.